This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dr. Rachel Zoftis, the other Dr. Z, UCSF pain and health psychologist and visiting professor at Stanford. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, dude, for having me. Snarf! Snarf! No. No? We're not doing Thundercats today. No Thundercats? Not today. Not today. Oh. So we're on like episode two of Pain Points now? Yeah, episode two of Pain Points. What is Pain Points? We take questions from you guys, from the audience, and we answer them best we can with the framework that everything is biopsychosocial. Yep. It's got a biological component, a psychological component, a social component. And in fact, you wrote a book, which I got a pitch because this thing is the bomb, the pain management workbook. And what's great about this is it's actually action items yeah. to make you feel better yeah. and be better. Yeah. So thank you for doing that. By I the way. got really mad about the state of pain management. Um in America, like I just think we've been mismanaging pain for many decades, and that's actually a known entity. It's not my opinion, even though I have strong opinions about it. You know, we have this opioid epidemic, which people are sick of hearing about, but more importantly, chronic pain is on the rise. So there are things we can do about pain, and step one is understanding pain, and and no one gets taught pain. So I just stuck everything I did into a book because a lot of it is not affordable for most people. So that's actually why the book was born. I just wanted to make it accessible and affordable to everybody. So people, I've read this book for people who've actually read it and have given me feedback. It, it's transformative. So really? it's, it's, yeah, because you're doing something. Yeah. It's a workbook, right? right? Yeah. That's what I love about it. Yeah. Now th- you said something though, like before we get into people's questions, because we're going to yep. talk about like Omicron, we're going to talk about depression. We're going to talk about, hang on. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, which both, both you and I suffer from. I, I'm so, I have so many questions for you. We're going to have an imposter off. Yeah. Like who's the bigger imposter? Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be like be a John, that John Travolta movie, Face Off, okay. where we, you know, we peel off the veneer of identity and underneath is just this scathing imposter. That sounds sh- scary. It's terrifying. Yeah. I love fear. It sounds, sounds like Skeletor. <laughs> you know. I said I wouldn't go there and you, then I just did. I'm you know, sorry. No, we're not going to do, we're not going to do Thundercats, <laughs> no, but Thundercats. we are going to do He-Man. Dude, Skeletor, Skeletor was the best. Remember, remember He-Man's um, sidekick, that weird cat, battle cat? So yes. The, oh yeah. It was like a giant, huge, huge like, tiger mammoth. Thing. And when it wasn't transformed, when it was just like standard. <laughs> Damn! I just opened the Pandora, He-Man. Pandora's I'm He-Man, so He-Man box. Sorry, everybody. Pandora's I He-Man box so sounds like a dirty picture. So the the the. the, the <laughs> <laughs> so oh the, man! I, we started on a good foot. So this little cat was a coward. Oh yeah, and then right? it like morphs. It morphs into this battle machine that's ready to fight Skeletor. Something is... happens when you like take me back to eighties cartoons. Like my head sort of explodes. I just haven't thought about it since nineteen eighty six. But yet it's there in your limbic system. 
somewhere. Because we've been conditioned by watching hours and hours and hours yeah. of this garbage. Yeah. Right. Somewhere in my brain. Can we go back to the list now? <laughs> Do we have to? I mean, this, <laughs> yes. Uh, so we were going to talk about benzodiazepines, totally. things like Xanax and Valium and, uh, and uh, Clonopin and Ativan. And if we have time, we're going to hit insomnia. Totally. So those and are the. If- and the things we don't get to, we're going to get to next time. Yeah. This is a series, right? And um, I keep thinking, okay, when are we going to cancel the series when people start saying, I don't like this anymore? And I keep getting messages from people saying, this is the best thing you do, so keep doing it. So Wow. I know. That's lovely. And it's because of me. It's not because of you. No, Let's be honest. it is definitely because I mean, of you. You write a book. I mean, I'm going to pitch the book one more time. <laughs> Where can you find it? I'll, I'll put a link. Amazon. It's on Amazon. Yeah, it's, like, yeah Amazon. it's cheap. It's pretty cheap. And you, it's like, yeah, you... You just want people to read it. So, and I do too. So, all right, let's start with Omicron. Now, this is what's amazing. This interview today almost Mm. didn't happen because you got the big O. Shame. The scarlet letter. Oh, you don't know. The O. Oh, yeah. There are people who still won't see me, just to be clear, because including some of my patients, because I tested positive three weeks ago. I'm testing negative now, just to be clear. I don't have symptoms. But I recently had COVID. So yes, Scarlet Scarlet Letter is the Scarlet Letter. Scarlet O. Let me just recap your medical history here for people so they understand. Uh. You are on you were fully vaccinated and boosted. Correct. You had tested positive for COVID back in 2020. Correct. But we don't know if it was false positive or not because you never had symptoms. No symptoms. That's right. You then started feeling badly. And by the way, you, so you said your, some of your patients won't see you because you were three weeks ago tested positive. People are just scared. You show up at my door. Yeah. We immediately hug. Right. Good point. Because I know that yeah. I'm vaccinated, boosted, and that um, you are recovered. I am recovered. And I I am told, and I'm, I want to know this, one of my questions. Now that I am recovered, I have heard that you get some immunity after having had it. Is that true? And how long does that last? So I have some immunity to getting it again for like a window. Is that true? Yes, it is absolutely true. And it's not just, so there there have been some studies on this looking in a particular direction. So the direction of you got infected at some point and then you got vaccinated. Now, people who've had that particular progression have really good immunity. Mm. People who go the other direction also probably have really good immunity. Great. And and by immunity, there's two aspects of it yeah. that people should understand. Yeah. One is the neutralizing antibodies that circulate in your blood. Once in, you've gotten it. Once you've gotten it. Those last for probably three months or so and they really start to wane. Those are the antibodies that prevent you from getting mild or moderate infection in the first place. So at very high levels, you're pretty safe. That's why in the early days of the vaccine, people were like, oh, 90% effective against even infection, right? But they wane over time, Mm. whether it's natural infection or whether it's vaccine. And that's why they talk about boosters because they wanted to bump back up the neutralizing antibodies to reduce the chance of infection. But here's the bigger question. You have a deeper immunity, right? Remember uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Yeah, I love that book. Uh, Aslan talks about, at the end, he talks about, you know, there's this magic, and then there's the deep magic. Mm, I like, remember. That ultimately cracks the stone that he's, you know, crucified on. It's like this this very powerful thing. That's what memory B and T cell immunity is like. So you had vaccine-based immunity where... The first dose gives you neutralizing antibodies. The second dose really solidifies the memory B and T cells that then live with you so that it takes a few days to spin them up, but they are the ones that prevent maybe for as long as your life, we don't know yet, but it's Mm long-term severe disease. 
So you got those from your vaccine and then you got a, another booster from your natural immunity. Omicron, Omicron, when I got it. And Omicron also, because you're now immune to multiple parts of the virus, not just the spike protein, mm -hmm. you get a broader immunity. And I suspect you're gonna have more resistance to any future variants that come up. Now that doesn't mean go out and get Omicron. Why? Because you experienced it, right? Yeah, I don't want it again. And I'm gonna tell everyone what that experience was like, because I think millions and millions of us are gonna be having this experience if we haven't already. Mm. Um, but, but why does my immunity wane in three months? Because circulating antibodies, those proteins that yep. form, that recognize aspects of the virus and yep. and bind to them and then trigger other parts of the immune system to kind of sort of gang pile on them, yep. those are designed to wane over time. Because if they didn't, Every single virus we get exposed to triggers antibodies. We would, our, our blood would be slush. It'd be full of protein. Perfect. So they come up when we need them and then they, they recede, but the, the memory source stem cells that produce them, the B and the T cells, those, uh, the B cells produce the antibodies and the T cells provide support. Yeah. Uh, they're there uh, for long, long times. And that's why like people like Monica Gandhi and, and others have said, immunity is our only way through a pandemic. Right. And this immunity is in fact, long lasting against severe disease, which is right. why people like Paul Offit, who just was on yep. my show have said, I'm not sure we need boosters for young, healthy people yeah, because I've they already have this mm -hmm. deep immunity. Okay. And, yeah. So back to you. No, so just to say, um, and I suspect a lot of other people have experienced this too. When I got sick, um, by the way, you were saying like my medical history, I am young, I am fit, I am boosted, I am vaxxed, I exercise all the time for my mental health. I'm like a runner. I'm the slowest runner you've ever met. <laughs> but, but so I got sick and what I had been hearing was Omicron is mild. That word mild is like at the top of everyone's list. It's everywhere. It's on media. It's on Twitter. It's everywhere. Mild, mild. I was so sick that I couldn't get out of bed for something like 12 days. Wow. Like the fatigue and lethargy. I have, and I don't want to scare people because at the end of the day, I am told that really this is what the flu feels like and sometimes worse. And yes. to be totally transparent, I have never had the flu ah, somehow. So, so I don't uh, know what the flu feels like, but to me, mild, I just think we need to like talk about what this word mild means to physicians. Mild means you're not hospitalized. Mm -hmm. Mild means you're not on a respirator. Mm -hmm. Mild means you're not going to die. Mild means you're not my problem as a doctor. You're your own problem at home. See, and, yeah. and that is a major communication breakdown. And mm -hmm. I am all about good communication that makes sense to people like me. So I, and I had also been hearing in fairness, the, the common definition of mild among friends and colleagues who were like, oh, just a few cold symptoms for a few days. And then I was fine. Now, I was knocked on my ass <laughs> and I am like an energizer bunny. You cannot knock me down. Like I wake up early. I get a ton of shit done throughout my day. You're battle cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am like He-Man's cat. Right. Whereas I'm Orko, is your... the weird little ghost guy that totally. would follow him You're around. You're definitely yeah. Orko. Mm -hmm. We can talk more about that. You're definitely Orko. Orko Genesis. Yeah, right. That's what it was. Yes. But, but when I couldn't get off my couch for like 10 days, I, I was scared. Yeah. And I'll, and I want to be clear about why I was scared. Now, if this was just the flu, I would any time before now, I would have been like, oh, this is just what the flu does to you. It knocks you down. And then in a couple of weeks or whatever, you're fine. You get your energy back. You eat chicken soup, whatever. 
Because it's COVID and because we have been hearing in our ears for two years, this effing thing is going to kill you. You're going to get long COVID. You're never going to be okay again. I was petrified. Mm. I, I, I'm so annoyed that that happened to me because I am hyper logical. I'm a scientist. I listen to people like you and I collect information. And I know logically that being my age, no comorbidities, blah, blah, blah. Chances are very high. I'm going to be fine. Wow. And what everyone keeps saying to me is COVID seems to be one of these animals where you just don't know. Like, you know, everyone has a friend and I have a patient. Actually, I have my first long COVID patient who is like 34 year old, healthy dude, no comorbidities, has had long COVID now for like almost two years. Wow. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to scare people. But that's the thing that's happening. We know that that's happening. But but long COVID is a biopsychosocial recipe, just like every everything else. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. But there's things going on with him, of course, in his biopsychosocial recipe that are maintaining the fatigue and the lethargy and the brain fog. Mm -hmm. But just to say, because I know that that's an option mm -hmm. and because I've been receiving all of this panicked information about it from the media, it wasn't a casual cold for me. And it sure as shit did not feel mild. That, okay. Okay. This is worth really diving into. You were incepted to some degree by the overall biopsychosocial. So the social component of it, whether it's the media, whether it's hearing about it constantly, whether it's the social component of hearing from your own patients, hey, this is what my experience was. And oh, you roll the dice, even when you're young and healthy, some people end up in ICU with ARDS and, and stiff lungs and post-ICU syndrome and, and all these things that we've talked about on my show. Okay, so all that's there. Turns out this happens with flu too. Like how much of chronic fatigue syndrome, how much of fibromyalgia, how much of these syndromes are long flu, are long Epstein-Barr virus, are long mono, we don't know because we haven't studied it properly. Wow. And so when you think of flu, like I've had mono, I've had flu before. Uh, I've been out for two weeks like you, unable to get out of bed, full on, like just feel like I'm hit by a truck. And then for a few months afterwards, I'm not right. I've heard that. Exactly. And so if I had had the same symptoms like you with COVID, with all this milieu, I would have felt like you did. Oh my God, like, do I need to go to the hospital? And you know, this manifests in a way psychologically, but it manifests also um, <clears throat> in, a, in a logistic way. So now the hospitals are full of people that think they're dying um, that wouldn't normally go to the hospital. And, and look, you That's do right. wanna go with COVID because again, this is one of those things we're still learning about. But the idea that we've created this anxiety contagion and so your your point to messaging, when we say mild, that is very deceptive. To people. It's so, yeah. right. It's so deceptive. And then when you get the symptoms that you're actually supposed to get, because by the by, this is a virus. Right. So you get the symptoms you're supposed to get with a virus like this, which is like the fatigue, the lethargy, the brain fog, the head cold. You're, you're not, because you've been told it's mild, you're like, well, oh crap, do I have- Yeah a not mild version mm. and does this bode poorly for me and and not for nothing you know a lot of people have heard the word placebo and the word placebo is a little bit more complex than than really what we've been told placebo is not just a sugar pill placebo is language also so if someone says as you did to me you're going to be fine this is what's expected you're going to be fine Language matters a lot to the brain and to your physiology. So my brain heard that message and it internalized it. And thank God that I have friends like you and other people who said that to me. And, and I believed that. Nocebo, 
is the opposite. And many people have not heard the word nocebo. Nocebo is language that conveys that you are effed. And by the way, <laughs> I had a dear friend who is a physician who doesn't obviously not know about nocebo. And on day 10 or so, I was feeling worse. Like literally, I felt like I had been hit by a train and I couldn't move, which is scary for me. Yeah. Um, and, and like, and I texted her and I was like, is this normal? And she said, oh man, like day 10, that's when people go to the hospital. Oh dear Lord. Right. Nocebo that's effect. Right. You got so it. And now. I felt the adrenaline in my mm -hmm. bloodstream. I felt the cortisol. Guess what cortisol does to your immune system, by it the way? It suppresses it. It tanks your immune <laughs> system. So when you have a virus, cortisol, by the way, is a stress hormone that your body produces when you're feeling stressed out or anxious. Also called, a, uh, um, uh, actually, no, never mind. Keep okay. going. Yeah. Yeah. But, but so when you get a nocebic message, which is a message of danger, your body produces adrenaline and cortisol, which da, 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 suppresses your immune, immune system. So if you're already sick, chances are high you're actually going to get sicker <laughs> and not recover. So I got so angry when I, I muted her. Like, I, I didn't tell her this, but I like muted all of her incoming text messages. She was like, day 10, that's like emergency day. <laughs> that's when everyone comes in and they can't breathe and blood oxygen is low. And I was like... I actually wrote, don't say anything else. Yeah. And then I just silenced her and I reached out to my other people who I knew were not going to give me catastrophic messages. So that's yeah. my piece of advice. Number one, if you get COVID and a lot of us are going to, maybe all of us will make sure to filter the incoming input that's Ooh. coming into your ears. Do not solicit <clears throat> input from people who are highly anxious about COVID, mute them, mute them. Don't call them. Don't ask them for advice. If they are catastrophic or anxious about COVID, they are going to have a nocebic effect on your health. So listen to people who are good, reputable sources of information like Zubin or whomever you're getting your information from who have facts and who are going to state facts, but are not going to state facts in a panicky sort of negative information, nocebic way that's going to trigger your cortisol immune suppressing system. You want the opposite. Does that make sense the way I said that? <laughs> I don't think anybody's talking about this, honestly. Great, this let's is, talk about is it. crucial. Right. Like what you just said. And listen, listen, you, like you've been through the ringer. You, you, and, yeah. you know, and by the way, you look great. Oh, thanks. I mean, so you, great. You're oh, a high energy great. Jeb. <laughs> Whereas I'm Sleepy Joe. This is just yeah. adrenaline. I'm this just nervous. Pure adrenaline, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Which is gonna, again, yeah. We're gonna get your cortisol spiked. We're gonna no, totally surprise. You're gonna get a secondary infection and pneumonia. I'm nocebifying you. Don't. Can you, can you feel it? Don't nocebify you me. Feel it. I don't want you to. What you said about you're fired. <laughs> listening to the catastrophizers. So it is a poisonous input in that sense. Correct. And people think, oh, words don't matter, and so on. But but we're social creatures, so they do matter. And they do affect our overall health. They do affect our standing and our mental status and the biopsychosocial aspects of any disease, which yep. is 100% of all diseases. Yep. So this is, this is partially why I do what I do, actually, yeah, during the pandemic. That's right. I have been accused by many people of underplaying no. uh, aspects of this, this thing okay. and and downplaying severity and using words like mild and things like that in, in certain contexts. And, but the messages I get from people yeah. are, thank you for calming me down. I was oh, living yeah. in fear. Yeah. I'm so much happier. Right. I went and got vaccinated. I'm okay. Right. I was, I was a recluse in my house or I, I panicked because this happened. And so there is a responsibility, I think, 
for people who do science communication, Correct. including physicians and others and That's psychologists, right. That's right. to speak knowing these effects, not to ever be inauthentic. So never to lie, never right. to try to manipulate, right. but to say, you know what, what's actually true and how we say it matters. Right. So mild with Omicron means just to be, and you correct me, it means you are very, very unlikely to get so sick that you have to go to the hospital. You are extremely unlikely to die from it unless you have some pretty complex comorbidities. And it's a small percentage of people who are being hospitalized and who are dying from Omicron. Is that correct? That is what my definition of mild is. And did I interrupt you? No. I feel like I did. I'm so well, sorry. you know, if you did, the audience <laughs> is thanking you because I'm just, I'll just talk for hours and I'll I say nothing. I want you nothing. to. That's why we're here. No, I want you. No, okay. No. But part two is if you're just a regular layperson like me and you get Omicron, if your definition of mild is like, I'm going to sneeze a few times and maybe have a runny nose and then I'm going to be done. That is true that that's happening for a lot of people. Like a lot of my friends are like, what's happening to you? I was just sick for two days and now I'm fine. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening to me. I don't know. <laughs> but but for a lot of people, because I put this on Twitter and I got like dozens and dozens of messages from other healthcare providers and physicians and Everyone else saying, yeah, this mild sh shit is is not accurate yeah. as far as my definition of mild. And I have been sick for three weeks and I had I had actually a couple of people email me and say the fatigue and lethargy has a long tail. I kept hearing long tail. Yeah, 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 the fatigue yeah. and lethargy has a long tail. So when the head cold and the sniffling and whatever goes away, you still may, might experience some fatigue and lethargy. So like full transparency, I do not sleep late. I am not, I have been sleeping till like 10 and 11 yeah. in the morning. And now is, this is like day 21 for me or something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And I'm fine. No more symptoms, testing negative, all good. But the fatigue and lethargy seem to have a long tail. So I'm going to validate you even more. Oh, great. So I just did a show uh, called Trigonometry with a couple of uh, British comedians who have this I podcast. Saw, Trigonometry. Yeah. So they- uh, never were vaccinated, but they got naturally infected back in 2020. So they thought they were okay. And, and they were from a severe disease standpoint. Yeah. But they both came down with what was presumably Omicron. Mm. It kicked their ass. Yeah. So they did a podcast about what it was like. Yeah. Days of just terrible pain, night sweats, isolation. It made their underlying mental predispositions worse. So one oh, of them yeah. has anxiety. He yeah. said he was just racked with anxiety. Of course. And he went to the, their A&E, which is their ER, and it was just a shit show of panic. And so, and these are hyper-rational. If anything, they're on the more the antithesis side of the COVID spectrum saying, yeah. you know, we're overblowing this. Like we need to like live our lives more libertarian. Yeah. And they were like, no, but this thing is, you call it mild, it ain't right. That's right. Yeah. That's from, from, right. And, and this is the thing. So influenza, the reason I get a flu shot every year, and the reason I think, this is why I argue for young people should still get vaccinated, even though it's not absolutely necessary. You still, if you can reduce your chances of having a flu-like syndrome for two weeks, that's a good thing. And right. the vaccines do do that. Right. Now, even with boosters, it breaks through, it happens. It depends right. on your inoculum, it depends right. on your genetics. Now, the last thing I wanna say about that piece of it, yes, because you brought it up, and we have to be real. This this is something where you're 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 threading a needle because long COVID. Oh yeah, thanks. yeah. So you have symptoms for so many days now, you know, and we define long COVID as so many weeks of the symptoms lasting, and the symptoms could be anything, could be loss of taste, it could be the, the definitions are tricky, right? But it is completely normal to have 
residual symptoms, like you said, the long tail yeah. for a any long illness. time, for yeah. any illness, any viral illness, any bacterial illness, it, it happens. And some of it is, remember, some of it is deconditioning too from being in bed for so long. Because it does happen. You're used to a certain level of activity and then you don't get it. Muscle atrophy. Absolutely. You're not the, eating as much. You're, there's autophagy. You're eating yourself, you know, like, yeah. and, and so all this stuff happens. And so it's important when we tell people, uh, you know, it's important to know these symptoms could last, but it doesn't mean that you're permanently damaged. And it doesn't mean it's long COVID. That's right. That's so important. And, and it's just making me realize like, we don't have this catastrophic name for long flu, like, or long pneumonia. Like my friend last night on the phone, we do like a weekly Zoom. She said, yeah, when I had pneumonia, I had lingering symptoms for three months and no one panicked about that. And they didn't give right. it a scary big name. Right. So like, maybe there's a little bit of catastrophizing around the tail, the long tail. The long tail. Yeah. Now there is long COVID. So of course long that, COVID. We're not diminishing that, but Correct. you're absolutely but right. But when do we call it that? And should we normalize that your symptoms might last a couple months? Just normalizing that experience so that people don't think they have long COVID if they don't. Yeah, yeah. Because yes, long COVID is real. And there's this period in between this like interstitial period, which is like, well, I'm recovered, but I still have some symptoms. Do I have long COVID now? Right. Which is right. sort of where I was. I was like, oh my God. Totally. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? Exactly. In this current milieu, you're normal to feel that way. Exactly. Right? Right. Now, one thing in your book, you do a lot of sort of CBT, cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy type stuff. Yeah. And you mentioned a few things trigger words here that are from that space, catastrophizing. Yeah, you got it. That's one of them, right? Yeah, it's a cognitive right. distortion where we see the worst possible outcome and focus on it, knowing that in fact, that's only one of many outcomes and it's probably unlikely. Uh, there are others, right? Like overgeneralization. Like, Do you see me beaming with pride over here? <laughs> you like, teach me. beaming with you pride. I'm so impressed. Uh, you know, that's why we're I'm a great so, duo. Two Dr. Yeah. Z's are better than one. Dude, um, that's so impressed. That was summarized so perfectly. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I learned from your book. I read your book. The, <laughs> people should get her book. The, 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 the overgeneralization, black and white thinking. These are all aspects that we can catch in ourselves. Yes. But we can also catch it in media. We can catch it in communications. We can catch it in writing styles of op-eds where, you know, you, you almost sometimes imagine that the person writing the op-ed is experiencing these cognitive distortions and is projecting them into the page, which is now projecting them into the world, which is now creating a biopsychosocial crisis. So let's now normalize when you when you get covid it's very likely and also normal that your brain is going to feed you a lot of bs distorted anxious thoughts yes. because we have all been ingesting nocebic scary information about covid for 2 years now from the sensationalist media that's putting up the word covid in like red and yellow with dangerous fangs you know so Naturally and normally, if and when you get COVID, if you feel terrified, that is normal. And your brain is going to feed you a lot of catastrophic, scary thoughts that are going to tell you, like my brain was telling me, that this is going to be long COVID and it's never going to go away. And the chances are high that that's not true. And it's very important to catch those thoughts and, and wrangle them and talk back to them. Otherwise, they will um, perpetuate that um, spike in cortisol that might mess with your immune system. So we, we want to catch the cognitive component of COVID too. Yes. I think that's very well said. Okay, great. Very well said. Cool. You know that. So yeah, 
I'm glad we had that discussion. I know, me too. That's yeah. not where I expected this to go, but that was so helpful for me. For me too. Yeah. Because so as, a, as somebody who's communicating about this, yeah. you know, people are suffering. They're yeah. suffering. This oh, is a yeah. massive suffering. That's and, exactly and right. The goal is to relieve suffering as much as we can. That is exactly right. So good. Anything else on Omicron you wanted to talk um, about? Just one thing. Yeah. What, where are we on time? Just out of curiosity. Uh, we uh, don't even worry about it. Oh, Time is okay. not a problem. All right, fine. Just one thing. Time is a concept that humans create. <laughs> In reality, where it's the eternal now. So wow, it, nothing is my head nothing has happened when you talk about like that. <laughs> uh, one thing that I learned about Omicron is that because it's being marketed as mild, mm-hmm. there are a subset of people who I, I don't know if this is still happening who are trying to get it on purpose. Yeah, please don't do that. Can I? Can, I have a dear story, brief story. Yes. Dear friend named Ben, when I was in San Diego getting my PhD and he made us dinner every Sunday night with a bunch of friends and we called it our Sunday night family dinner. And one thing that we often did was we played Scrabble. It was not a normal game of Scrabble. You can judge me if you want. It wasn't my idea. It was perverted Scrabble. Oh, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. And the rules of perverted, it's not my idea, but it was really fun and really funny. It's like, hey, you're like, taint. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And Got the it. rules were you had to make a word that was like ridiculous and perverted and you had to define it. Oh, and it had to be an accurate definition. Okay. So one word that I learned, this is, this is coming full circle. I promise. <laughs> one word that I learned is bug chaser. Bug chaser. Bug chaser. I've never heard that term. I had never heard it either, and it blew my mind, and then I went and looked it up, and it's a psychological phenomenon that occurred probably multiple times, but the context in which I learned it was with the AIDS uh, epidemic. Aha. They, right. There were a subset of people who were so overcome with anxiety and paralysis about getting HIV and AIDS that they deliberately would find infected partners and have sex with them to get it over with. Oh my God. So they didn't have to be anxious about it anymore. And you see where I'm going with this. Yes. There's a lot of people who have been anxious about getting COVID for two years and, or just want to get it over with. And by the way, when I finally got it very much, I was like, thank God. I'm just, I want to just get, let me just get this thing over with, get the immunity and move on with my life. I'm just so over it. Like everybody, we're just tired of it. Yeah. Um, normal, but, very normal. Right. Yeah. But there are people who are going out of their way to try to go to an Omicron party. Bug it's like cha- rushing bug a chasing. Yeah. Bug chasing. And one of my colleagues, a pediatrician said to me, oh, we see that a lot with chicken pox. Yes, we do. Because you want to get your, you want your kids to get it and get it over with. So, so funny. I just interviewed bug Paul Offit and he mentioned the same exact yeah. scenario, the chicken pox parties. Yeah. Where before vaccine, you do want your kids to get chicken pox because yeah. it's much more dangerous to get it as an adult. Yeah. For us, we would rather get Omicron when we're young and healthy than when we're 80 and whatever. Sure. The thing is we have a vaccine. And we, when the varicella vaccine came out for chickenpox, people were still having chickenpox parties. Now you're subjecting your child to a risk as small as it is of hemorrhagic varicella mm. or encephalitis or pneumonia mm-hmm. that can be fatal. In the pre-vaccine era, up to 10,000 kids were hospitalized every year with chickenpox related right. complications. Right. So- what we're saying with Omicron is, I know the desire to do that. It's normal desire. You're not a bad person for wanting to go out and get chick, get Omicrox, uh, but don't. And it doesn't mean you have to hide or do any of that, but it's right. like, don't go out of your way. Right. And if you're going to make that statement, like, oh, I want to get Omicron, I hope you're vaccinated. Oh, yeah. Um, because again, vaccines aren't perfect. That's why- 
we are still careful. It doesn't mean you have to triple mask and do all that. And if you don't want to, but it's just about understanding risk. Right. So okay, going good. out and getting Omicron, don't advise it. That's so good. Just yeah. wanted to knock out the bug I'm chasing. glad you're fascinating. alive. Thank you. I am also glad I'm alive. Yeah. Because so that would have sucked that. for the show if I were just talking to myself. Okay, Zoob. <laughs> Okay, Rach. Oh, um, no, yes. I hate that. Don't yeah, do that. You're going to Zoob me. I'm going to Rach you. That's fair. I was telling <laughs> Zubin that I get messages sometimes from people I've never met who write me like, hey, Rach. <laughs> I get that too. I'm hey, like, Zub. You're a little too familiar. A okay. too familiar. I don't know why I sound like Trump. Well, you're, hey, little, you're being a little too familiar. Oh, that doesn't sound like Trump at all. Depression. It sounded like the godfather. It did. Can we talk about depression? Uh, yeah. It's ubiquitous in the United States. It I mean, everywhere. Is. And especially during the pandemic. Raise your hand if you've ever been depressed. Raise your hand if you've been diagnosed with major depression. I have not. I have not. No. So it's a spectrum. So here's the interesting thing about depression. Um, there is a book out there called Saving Normal. Have you read Saving Normal? I I'm going to give it to you. I've heard about this. Yes. I haven't Saving read it Saving Normal is a fascinating book. That goes into how arbitrary, truly, our definitions of normal and abnormal really are. Oh. And how the definition of depression mm. and the criteria in the book we call the DSM, which defines criteria, is uh, influenced by many, many, many things, including big pharma. That is absolutely a true story. And Saving Normal was written by one of the gentlemen who helped write the DSM. Oh. And he goes into how these definitions came to be. And for anyone who is interested in health or mental health, you will be utterly astonished to learn that this thing we call major depressive disorder uh, is quite arbitrary. <laughs> There's not a lot of science in our current definition of illness, mental illness, what is what is normal and what is abnormal is always changing. Um, and we have to be very careful when we talk about disease and labeling people who have been diagnosed with this thing, depression, as mentally ill. Now, I want to be clear that I am not saying that depression is not a mental illness. I, of course, it's real. Yes, I am not saying that. But I want to talk about the definitions. First of all, uh, the other issue, and then I, and you can maybe get to our questions. The other issue with depression is that we have all been sold this completely BS idea that depression is a purely biomedical thing. And by that, I mean people who are depressed and go to their doctor get told it's not your fault. Your brain is just broken, but it's not your fault. It's a flaw in chemistry, not a flaw in character. That when I lived in Manhattan, when I was getting my master's degree at Columbia, I would look out my window every day and on this big building in like 12 foot letters, I'm not joking, put up by a big pharma company. Depression is not a flaw in character. It's just a flaw in chemistry. It's a brilliant message because here's what it does. It takes the onus off of you like, mm. oh, it's not your fault. But it does place the onus squarely and directly on your dysfunctional, broken brain. Mm. Now, that is a big lie. And I want to make sure I'm saying this clearly. People with depression, you are not broken. You are not broken. That is a big lie that you have been sold. Is depression real? Yes. Is it debilitating for many people? Yes. Are there treatments out there that work? A hundred percent. 
neurotransmitters are involved in depression. Neurotransmitters are those chemicals that live in your brain and regulate mood and sleep and appetite and, and all those delightful things. But those are not the only component of depression. You have something to say. I know you do. I can see it in your you face. Know, I'm just, I'm vibing with this so much. I have a lot of thoughts. Keep going. Um, okay. Well, what I want to do, what I was thinking was, um, I want to hear all of your thoughts. Do you want to read the, some of the questions we got about depression or no? Absolutely. Okay. And, and, bef and before I do, I want to say one thing. So what you're describing is a reductionism. Correct. And it is actually in service of, of big pharma's interests, which Correct. are to sell pills. Correct. I like the destigmatizing component that it's not your fault, but in reality, nothing is your fault because we are what we are, but that doesn't mean you don't take responsibility for making yourself better. And so uh, the reductionism is a fascinating piece. There's a guy named uh, Ian McGilchrist, who's a psychiatrist, neuroscientist in Great Britain, who's written a book called The Master and His Emissary. And it is about the right brain and the left brain. Not the pop psychology nonsense, like I'm a, a right-brained kind of creative and I'm a left-brained <laughs> scientist. It's like, it turns out that's not what they do. That's not what they do at all. But what what is felt to be the case is that the right brain sees the world in a holistic, connected, relational way. And the left brain actually evolved as the right brain's servant, as its emissary, because what it does is it reduces holes into little parts and grasps at them and tries to uh, drill down and make sense in a reductionist way. He argues in the book that as human societies progress, they start to fail because we go from a right brain, left brain balance where it's true, the master right brain and it's his emissary are working in concert to see things holistically and, and work together to a left brain dominant society where we reduce everything to its bureaucratic lowest common denominator. And I think that's what we're seeing with depression treatment. It's, and, and thinking about it, well, it's just a chemical imbalance. Right. Yeah, doesn't help anyone. Right. And, and then you have this huge bureaucracy in medicine that manages the chemical imbalance with a rubber stamp. Here's some Prozac, here's some Paxil, here's whatever. Not even looking at the biopsychosocial holistic part of the whole thing. And we're gonna talk about what that means, depression being biopsychosocial, because that was actually the question we got. That's perfect. So let's start with the first question then. I've been on and off antidepressants for 25 years. Every psychiatrist tells me meds work. Why aren't I better? Harold M via Twitter. Will you read the next one also? And my depression ebbs and flows, and I've been on meds for more than a decade. Help me understand depression with your biopsychosocial magic, please, says Danny. Right. Um, so just so I want to be clear what this biomedical model of health is. This is what is um, predominant in medical schools. And the biomedical model of health focuses on just biology. Do you, will you say as a, former med student, because I did not go to med school, um, what a biomedical model of health looks like a little bit. A biomedical model of health reduces the sort of four quadrants of human existence to one quadrant, which is it. So the body, its chemicals, its uh, functions, it's a left brain approach. It's saying, let me not look at a whole, but let me just look at the parts. And by fixing parts, by moving parts, we will fix the whole. Right. Yeah. That's right. So, so what you and I have been talking about for a while now is this idea, which is more like fact, which is that health is always more complex than just that. Human beings are more than just 
body parts, right? We're more than just chemicals and organs. So there's the bio domain of health. It's these, this three-part thing. There's bio, which is our biology. Then there's psych, which is like thoughts and emotions and behaviors and memories and trauma. And then there's social or sociological, which is like the everything else bubble, right? Socioeconomic status and access to care and race and ethnicity and cultural issues, family and culture and context and your larger environment, yes. right? So it's all these things always working together in a complex interplay. Um, and well, but, but which, by the way, you can ahead. reduce in, in the spirit of reductionism in the yeah, biomedical yeah. model, you can reduce to I, we, and it's. Okay. So the bio is it's, the we is the social technological stuff, and the I is the internal state. Great. Yeah. Great. Um, what I want everyone to know is that while bio is a very important part of depression, of course, and the bio of depression is like genetics and it's hormones and it's immune functioning and it's like sleep and diet and exercise and it's sex. So females more than males are prone to depression for a million reasons. We can go into the social component of that. Mm. Um, and it's also like time of year and the amount of sunlight you get, like winter tends to be a trigger. So all the bio things like neurotransmitters, hormones, those genetics, all real. There is no gene for depression. Dun, 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 dun. There is no gene for depression. There's no depression gene. So I have had patients come to me and say, my mom has depression, so I'm screwed. Mm -hmm. If my mom has a gene for depression, I am going to be depressed. Mm. Talk about nocebo. Mm. Right. So, so we want to be careful. And by the way, um, yes, it is shown that uh, depression can run in families. But let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Um, can you think of other reasons why if a parent is depressed and a child grows up in that home, why that child might end up feeling depressed other than it was passed down by a gene? <laughs> well, we are social creatures. Children are particularly empathic. They're picking up on the signals of the parents. There may be abuse and other cyclic actions that are triggered by the depression. Um, and I'll say this in the spirit of true integration, there's cultural stuff, social stuff, the way the child then behaves as someone who has some st stigma of that, how they're treated socially can feed back into that. And then I think that's all in the setting of maybe there are multiple genetic uh, pieces that collude to put you at slightly higher risk that yes. then is fulfilled by your environment. Wow. Can I, do I, do we give out gold stars on this show? Um, if so. Can we get those for I next time? I could get half a one. And then we can wear them on our forehead. <laughs> That's a good idea. That was we should, beautiful. Maybe we could get a little device that just goes cha-ching. Like, yeah. I, I wanted to do that multiple times when you were talking. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> awesome. Great. That was beautifully said. So yes, there are a number of genes it is hypothesized that might contribute and it is never, ever, ever genetics alone. It is never, ever, ever brain chemistry alone. That's not how it works. Again, depression lives in the middle of this biopsychosocial recipe, like exactly what you just said. So we already did the bio. Let's talk about the psych for a minute. Mm. The psychological con contributors to depression include the thoughts you have in your head. So when I see people who are depressed, mm. they think things like, this is never going to get better. I am broken. Nobody loves me. My life is meaningless. There's no purpose. Now, if you're thinking thoughts like that, how do you think you're going to feel? 
<laughs> I literally just ate the microphone because I got a, so excited. Rogan is always asking people to eat. Just just get right up eat on the, the microphone. microphone. Yeah. I, I kind of just in, ingested it. So, yeah. so what you just described are those cognitive Correct. thoughts. Okay, keep going. Cognitive components of depression mm-hmm. feed this cycle of depression because it's always all the things. And guess what? Here's Here's a fact. Thoughts affect physiology. So... Mm. Yes. If you are hooked up to a machine, by the way, this is called biofeedback, Mm -hmm. which gives you feedback about your biological processes. If you're hooked up to a machine and you're thinking catastrophic, terrifying or depressing negative thoughts, the machine that is reading biological processes will show you that there are changes in heart rate, Mm -hmm. changes in body temperature, changes in muscle tension and blood flow, like the thing and even blood oxygen. Mm. The things that change when you think a thought are physiological. So I just want to prove to everyone that depression is biopsychosocial. So we have thoughts. Uh, thing two in the psych bubble are emotions. So if you are feeling stressed or overwhelmed or anxious um, or having lots of uh, sad feelings or you're feeling very angry, emotions are also going to feed into the depressive cycle. As everyone knows, when you're really anxious and really stressed out, it's hard to be in a good mood. So Emotions are always perpetuating the cycle. Also, we have um, self-esteem in the psych bubble, too. Mm. If you imagine like if you're struggling with low self-esteem, that can contribute to a depression. So, oh, man. This is like a three hour show in itself. It's so good. I like we I wish. Oh, so. okay, okay, okay. Just a couple things before you go on. So thoughts contributing to depression. That's easy to wrap your head around because yep. you can say, okay, yeah, these catastro- catastrophizing, yeah. these low uh, identity issues around self-esteem. Absolutely. Because that's a story. It's another yes. thought complex we right. tell about ourselves. I'm worthless. Yeah. And these are distortions too. Yeah. Because I did this, I'm forever this. Right. Uh, all these kind of ways of seeing. What's interesting is the emotion piece. Mm. So this is where... I'm going to, I'm going to put the blame squarely again on thought. I think thinking it's a Zen saying thinking is the disease of the human mind. And Mm. this is why emotion, raw emotion can come up, but what it does is it triggers a thought cascade, a story cascade, an identity cascade, a self-esteem cascade. And that feeds back and actually reinforces the emotion through resistance. It's like, no, 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 I shouldn't be feeling this. This anger is bad. I'm a bad person. Then the stories and then the depression is worse. So yeah. So anyway, sorry, not to interrupt, but that's something that just came to me that actually accepting raw emotion as it is and and letting it be is a very hard thing for humans to do because we tell stories about it. Yeah. Agree. And I thought, yeah, that was a very helpful connection because I think what you and I really want to do is just connect all the things. We have this false divide between brain and body, but actually the truth of it is that all the things are connected all the time. Yes. Body, and, mind, environment. It's all one thing. Correct. Yeah. Right. So, so we've got our bio bubble, we've got our psych bubble. And just to say also in the psych bubble, this biopsychosocial model of depression mm. is behavior coping behavior. So how you act Ah. when you have depression is going to affect the cycle of depression. So what I mean by that is when we are depressed, sometimes we naturally and normally isolate, stop moving, stop going outside, stop exercising, stop seeing friends. You know, we, we hole up and become hermits. Um, We sleep, we sleep all day. Mm -hmm. And guess what? That kind of coping you bet your ass 
is going to make you feel more depressed because now you have no life. You're not seeing your friends. You're not going out. Sunlight, by the way, we are diurnal animals. Sunlight is critically important for serotonin, Mm -hmm. which is the neurochemical that crashes in depression. We need to be moving our bodies because exercise stimulates this neurotransmitter called serotonin that is implicated in depression. And in fact, the medications that we dispense for depression raise levels of serotonin. So coping behaviors, the the behaviors we choose to engage in can also either tank our serotonin or raise our serotonin. Mm. So even though depression is fighting you and telling you to stay home and stay on your couch and not see anyone, the most critical part of treatment, in my very humble opinion, is getting fighting it, getting off your couch, making Mm. plans, Mm. standing outside in the sun, making sure you're connected with your community, finding ways to move your body. So, so coping also changes depression and that lives in this psych bubble. Absolutely. Well, one thing I'll even add, uh, and I don't know how valid this is, but it seems to be valid. There's a kind of self-soothing that we've learned as young kids that we, it used to be like you, you, you reach out with certain actions and behaviors to your parents to get soothed. Yeah. Like I'm suffering. Let me show you how I'm suffering. Yeah. And the parent soothes you and then you you calm down. But as we get older, we internalize some of those processes. So in our mind, we start to go, God, I'm suffering so much. I'm so, dep- I'm so sad. I can't get out of bed. I won't get out of bed. And there's a kind of an internal self-soothing algorithm where we think, okay, this is going to make us feel better by, by really just wallowing yeah, in this. Yeah. So you don't get out of bed. You don't move, you know, by moving, by getting out of bed, it's almost like admitting, oh, maybe I'm, maybe the suffering isn't as bad. So you know, maybe I won't get soothed in this way. And I wonder if there's a conditioning there that sometimes it's good to make explicit. I don't know. It's just something that, that kind of comes to me sometimes. So I think that's actually really true. And it does feel like soothing, except that it's a trap. It's a trap. Right. That's the thing. It's a trap. So the it's point quicksand. is it's a trap. It's, it's quicksand. quicksand. Right. It, it, it's something we learned as kids, but it doesn't work when it's right. internal. Right. <laughs> yeah. And also that kind of self-soothing is great and fine. Like nurture yourself, take time to rest and eat good food and then break the cycle. That's right. Like, it's a that different is type critical. of self-soothing. It's right. very critical to break. And I want to get to part three because, you know, uh, otherwise we will do seven hours on the biosynthesis, <laughs> which would be true. fascinating. But but so then there's the psychosocial bubble or the social bubble of depression. Um, and that really is everything else. So mm. socioeconomic status. And we can talk about what happened during COVID where people lost jobs and lost homes and there was food insecurity and what that does to your mood. Uh, and social isolation. Human beings are social animals. In the presence of other people, our brains produce chemicals that make us feel good. Serotonin. I keep mentioning serotonin because that's an antidepressant. So in the presence of other people, your brain produces serotonin. It also produces dopamine, which is this reward chemical that makes you feel good. It also produces oxytocin, which makes you feel connected to other people, makes you feel warm and fuzzy. I produce man milk when I release oxytocin. And some Zubin's breasts produce man milk, which is very (laughs) impressive. Uh, your, your brain also produces endorphins when you're with other people, which is a natural painkiller and an endogenous painkiller. So in the presence of others, your brain literally makes you feel good to encourage you to engage in social behavior. Guess what happens when you're isolated? Like the last two years, all of us, all of it sucked all away. the chemicals mm. crash and you feel worse. So if you have depression and you're socially isolated, COVID has probably been real bad for you because we've also lost our normal coping strategies and our support systems. Like for some people it's church and for some people it's Thursday night, you know, 
board games and whatever, whatever it is. Perverted Scrabble. Per- maybe it's Perverted Scrabble at Ben's house where he's making you homemade ice cream. And like, I really miss those evenings, I'll just say. Mm. Um, but but in this f- social bubble, there's also like parents and family dysfunction. And um, a, a lot of stuff that happened during COVID, too, was an increase in abuse and mm. domestic violence. And, you know, relationships are toxic, as we all know. Um, mm. So so there's a lot of things that live in this social bubble like as you know your relationships affect your mood there's also we're not talking about grief and loss and death like i have um, a dear family member who lost her daughter to a terrible accident in a hospital and she was diagnosed with depression by the way that's grief and mourning and loss and they put her on ssris which are a medication for depression and surprising to no one they didn't make her feel better because it's not that her brain is broken it's not that it's a flaw in chemistry It's that when you lose a child, Mm. it is a terrible, terrible trauma. And there's a lot of ways of treating that. And by the way, I want to make clear, I am not Mm anti-medication. I have heard from many people that antidepressants have been very helpful for them. But what I am pro and what I want to promote is that it's never just one thing. It's never just the bio. If you really want to treat depression, you have to go after the whole biopsychosocial recipe. You want to look at the bio. Yes, of course you do. And you want to look at the psych. You want to look at the thoughts and the memories and the other emotions besides sadness that are happening for you and your coping behaviors, what you're doing and whether or not it's working. And you want to look in the social bubble. What's going on in my environment? That is perpetuating my depression. Do I have toxic relationships? Is there abuse? Is there poverty? Is there racism? What is happening in my larger context that might be messing with my mood and what can I do about it? So I hope that makes sense that the actual real treatment for depression, the actual real treatment is not and never will be just a pill. That is not the treatment for depression. It is a biopsychosocial illness that requires a biopsychosocial treatment. And that is true 100% of the time. And I actually recently got into a fight with a physician at Stanford who has a website that I think is horrible. And if you search for it, it's like this Stanford depression definition. And it says some cases of depression are almost entirely genetic and some cases of depression are not at all genetic. And anyone who understands science will tell you that it is always biopsychosocial. All the things. Oh, Literally always like, but just that just tells me this gentleman was trained in the biomedical model and no one ever told him that the psych and the social are just as important. Like you're telling me that a child who grew up in an impoverished, abusive household where they were beaten every day and they developed depression. It just might be that 95 percent of them. It was like a genetic thing. Just maybe it was genetic. Like, no, maybe there was a genetic predisposition and the environment is the thing. Like, it's always genes plus environment. That's how that's what humans are. Exactly right. I, how many gold stars can I throw at you for that? It just whole makes thing? me so mad. And so so the, the, the other thing is that you just think about like, you know, somebody who survives the Holocaust and they're resilient in a way that some of that is genetic. Yes. Some of those kids who survive those very traumatic uh, upbringings grow up to be very resilient. Well, okay, so some of that's genetic. Some of that is they had some luck. Some of that they had help. Some of that is uh, what they had for breakfast. It's it's a very complex thing. Resilience is biopsychosocial too. Yep, sure is, sure is. And and that, it relieves some of the shame issues for people because they understand, no, it's actually quite complicated. It's not that simple, but that doesn't absolve me in whatever agency I have of taking some degree of control or at least perception of control to do some things. 
But that's and, exactly right. And, that, and that's what, I mean, again, I'm going to keep pimping this Aww. thing. It, if that's what you do in the book, it's a workbook. You're supposed to go and actually answer, go in and fill in these things. Look at your thoughts, journal these things out. You know, you know I read Feeling Good, the book about yeah, CBT. Burns. Really great. Yeah. Burns started this, the CBT movement. Cognitive behavioral therapy is a gold star treatment for depression. Cognitive behavioral therapy. It really is great. Now, what I'll say is this. It's not the only thing, right? Correct. So again, it's a, it's a piece. There's no panacea. There isn't. If you read the book, you might think, oh, this is it. But the truth is it's one piece and it may not be the perfect fit for everybody. Correct. You require, oh, listen to that. They're doing some kind of- Drilling. Remodeling up there. Right. I feel like I'm at the dentist. I, that's the sound that triggered for me too. Do you think Battle Cat turned um, into his wussy cat whenever he goes to the dentist? Maybe. Do but. you know, we got, we got some questions actually about dentists and dental anxiety. Did we? Yeah. I don't but think we'll, we'll save it for another think, time. I think I think we're talking sufficiently loud that it won't really be heard. It wouldn't. Yeah, I think, I think okay. it's just actually a nice touch. Yeah, it the, adds den a certain the dental ambience. drill. Yeah, yeah. It's giving Inspires, me. Like, it's like, funny. It's oh, so I got to tell you a quick story, a little side. Okay. I because I've been meditating a lot, um, which is probably a little bit of seeking behavior, meaning it's a little bit of like, oh, I can control this process mm. of spiritual awakening. Mm. Well, you can't. It really just kind of happens. You can put yourself in the way of it. So I put myself in the way of it by meditating. Sometimes four hours a day. Like I'll get up really early, go to bed really late and Love do it. it. Well, so I was in that state of concentration. I went to the dentist. The dentist was like, oh, you know, you have these sort of receded gums. I'm really gonna try to clean under them uh, quite a bit. So you might feel a little discomfort. It was like somebody uh, was drilling into my brain is uh, what it felt like. So I said, okay, I can either capitulate here. Like, so, okay. And then I thought, I actually thought about you. I was like biopsychosocial. I thought about meditation. I thought about, because this is pain. Pain is a signal for my brain saying, hey, wee-oo, wee-oo, something's Danger. up. Don't know, you know, I knew intellectually she's not, not hurting me. Not dangerous. Not damaging me. She's the dentist for gosh sake. So I said, okay, let me witness this pain as that, and I dove into it. Like I became this vibrating sensation. It no longer was pain. It oh no longer God. had a story. It, no, it was this vibrating sensation of energy. And when it was, she, she was, I was done, it was funny. I think I may have had actually a tear come down involuntarily, but I was not suffering. And I told her, she goes, so how was that? And, and I said, oh, there was a lot of pain, but it was okay. That's all I could say. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. and that's how it felt. Wow. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, but you know, what's funny now, if we talk about it and you hear these guys drilling, there's an anticipatory component. It's like, oh, I'm going to have to go back. She's probably going to do that again. Like, will I be able to drop into that state? Yeah. And then the mind starts to tell stories. Yeah. It's crazy. But that's what an amazing story you just told in my mind about like the cognitive component of pain mm. and the amount of control we have over it. And as you were talking also about depression, it just reminded me that, one of the things we really want to do is give people their power back mm. and help them remember that they have some power over pain and they have power over depression. And the way you hack pain and the way you hack depression is by going after the different components of this biopsychosocial recipe. So if you've done the bio already, and most people have, and you're still experiencing pain or you're still experiencing depression, the good news is there's this whole bio domain and there's this whole psychosocial domain that you can go after mm. to exact some control 
over your pain recipe or over your depression recipe and change the recipe and change your experience. And that's what I like so much about it is that it gives a lot of hope and power back to people who are living with all the things. Oh, so you're giving people many more options. That's exactly right. Which gives them, it gives them agency and empowerment. Exactly. exactly. Like what can I change in my behavior? What can I change in my environment? What can I change in my thoughts? Absolutely. What can I do to change my emotions? If I was sitting in that dentist chair and I didn't have the tools that I'd had by it. luck, by serendipity, you right? That I, I would have just been like, I quit. And then she would have had to do the whole thing with the deep cleaning and the numbing and all that. I didn't have to do all that. Right. But it was, it was and, 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 and this is not an isolated experience that just some people have. I think anybody can do this. But anybody they, can do it. They need to be empowered That's and, right. and taught have how to do tools. it. Right. Have Let's the do imposter syndrome. I love it. I'm speaking dying of, to do it. Speaking of empowered. Yeah. Uh, so imposter syndrome. This is something that you and I have touched on before. Here's the question. Why does imposter syndrome always show up when good things happen in my life, says Percy A. What is imposter syndrome? And and why is it that people who actually would be described by others as very successful often are crippled by this? So I've been dealing with imposter syndrome a lot lately. Like here's the here's what imposter syndrome sounds like to me in my head. Who do I think I am? Why would anyone listen to me and everyone's going to find out I'm a big, fat, phony fraud? fraud. Mm -hmm. What what does it sound like for you? Exactly that. In fact, for me, it shows up in so many subtler ways too, because if I'm meditating and it suddenly occurs to me, a thought arises, something I said on my show that wasn't quite the way I wanted to express yeah. it. I'm like, well, of course I'm an idiot. Why should, why is anyone listening to me anyways? I'm totally worthless. And, and oh it becomes a thing. God. So imposter syndrome, this deep sense of, I'm not supposed to be here. This is not right. I'm not worthy of this, whatever. People shouldn't be listening to me. So for me, this came up recently, and I know you know this, after I was on a podcast called Ologies. Great Ologies has been my favorite podcast for four years. I discovered it four years ago when it was a little tiny. It's it's just a, sci- a nerdy science podcast, and Allie Ward is her name, and she interviews all these ologists. So like mycology is the study of mushrooms, and cosmology is the study of the cosmos, and and I, you know, I love pain communication and I believe deeply that everyone deserves to understand pain and that we're not going to treat it unless everyone understands it. So I pitched to her this episode called Dolorology, which is an actual word. It's the science the of pain. I love it. It's a science of pain. And I didn't hear from her for four years because she's very busy and also cool. But what happened over those four years is that that little podcast became super completely famous. And I'm glad she ignored me for four years. She's the number two science podcast most of the time. I know this because I beat her one week with the VPZD show. We got number two and then we faded back to number eight or something. No way. Congratulations, by the way. Yeah. But she's been at this a long time and she, she finally wrote back to me and said, okay, we're going to do a pain episode. (sighs) And it went viral. Yeah. But, But I still... As you can tell, I still have a lot of disbelief around this. So it was shared a quarter of a million times in like a week. And when I found that out, I was like, wait, what? Like, shit, everyone's going to find out that I'm an imposter. So it really came up real hard for me. And I got anxious about it, actually. I was like, should I tell her to take it down? Like, who do I think I am that I get to be on ologies and that I'm disseminating this information? Um, Now, I want to say this, and I know it's going to make me sound like a cocky a-hole, so I want to be like careful about it. But I also want to say the facts are I was trained at Brown and Columbia. I have a Ph.D. from UCSD. I have four degrees. I did 
a postdoc and an internship. I teach at Stanford and UCSF. I know I'm a nerd and I, I don't I don't do it for accolades. I do it because I'm a nerd and I want to learn. And if I could go to school the rest of my life, I would like I'm not trying to be cool. Like I just really deeply love learning and communicating science, as you know, like it's just I was always a nerd. Like I was a library mouse nerd. I didn't have friends. I was not cool. No one wanted to hang out with me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not saying but 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 when you look at this in pot, like when I look at you, you're so successful and so brilliant and so well trained. Right. And you still have the thought. Oh, I'm a steaming piece of shit. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> what is that? So this is the heart. This is the heart of imposter what syndrome. What is that? It's the heart of imposter syndrome. In medicine, it's very common. Yeah. Very, Why? very common. And I, I, I suspect, now there, there's many, look, I'm speculating, but I would say this. I think the more you know about something, the more you're passionate about something, the more you understand how little you know. Oh yeah, and that's right. Then there becomes this kind of cycle of self-doubt because you're like, oh, I know how complicated this is. And here I am out there saying, oh, this, that, and the other thing. Right. And, it, and, and there's that dental drill again. It's giving me like, I'm starting to feel it in my gums. The, there's this idea then that, well, I'm not worthy of saying it. So what happens is someone with very little knowledge who doesn't yet trigger the, Imposter, Imposter syndrome. syndrome will go and say it because they have instead Dunning-Kruger syndrome where they don't know what they don't know. And they're in a different different part of the cycle of knowledge. So ultimately then, I think the most successful people who know the most about something who are subject matter experts yes. feel the deepest kind of imposter syndrome because yeah. they're like, dude, I don't, I don't know. You know, or they, they make another cognitive fallacy where they assume others know at least as much as them. Like, this is my problem. Like, sometimes I won't do a show because I'm like, well, that's just dumb. Everybody knows that. I'm not going to talk about the symptoms and signs of COVID. And Logan, my producer, early in the pandemic, he's like, dude, do a thing on the symptoms and signs yeah. of COVID. And I was like, that's so dumb, dude. People aren't that dumb. They're no. going to know it. Whereas in reality, I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to look stupid by saying something so obvious. obvious. Well, so I do the video. It gets like 25 million views. Of course, people don't because know. Because people don't know. No. Because it's not in the training of the average lay person That's to right. know that. That's so right. again, and then the imposter syndrome and all of that. Right. Yeah. So because I want to learn the things about the things. And by the way, imposter syndrome has been very uncomfortable for me. It has made me like maybe not want to do certain things. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't do this thing with Zubin. Who do I think I am? You, I, uh, yes. Right. And and yet you you push through it every time. Despite sweating through my clothes. Yes. And, and feeling like I'm going to throw up. And you know, it's become, it's, it's become, it's, Story. It's, be, it, it's a kind of suffering for you. But for me, I see it as, okay, so this is now the, it's, it's kind of the way we do business, you and I. Like, I know you're going to get nervous. I, I know. I'm going to try and bail. And you're going to try to bail. And then I'm going to be like, dude, let me tell you all the ways that you help people. And then you go back to the mission, which is your mission. This is the thing. Yeah. You're just a conduit for it. You're, you're not even a thing, Rachel. Right. I hate to like take yeah, you down. It has nothing peg. to do with me at all. No, you're a no. hole in the universe that channels this agree, truth. Agree, agree. And you know it in the deepest intuitive levels, Very which is much why yes. you keep showing up, uh, even though dude. it takes years off uh, your life. Dude, it takes years and off your life. And post-COVID. Right. With your long tail of fatigue. With my long tail yeah. of fatigue. But I do feel a lot better right now and very energized because I feel like this work is important and the information is important. I'm going to make a meta comment on that. I sense the switch happens the minute we start going. I agree with you. I feel it too. And I feel it too. Because yeah. I'm also just like, okay, we got to... 
you know, every time before a show, I'm always nervous. Actually, oh, you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always what? just like, you know, because I, it, there's a few things I have to run all this equipment too. I have to guide a conversation, which means I need right. a level of attention and engagement. Right, right, Otherwise, true. it's inauthentic. Yeah. And um, I also have imposter syndrome. Dude. Okay. So let's tackle that. I think I'm going to help you with imposter syndrome. Nice. Yeah. So I went down this rabbit hole and I looked up imposter syndrome and the treatment of it. I wanted to know what it was. I wanted to know how common it was. And I wanted to know what to, to effing do about it. Uh -huh. And I found a gentleman named Jordan Harbinger. Who is a mutual acquaintance because I was on his show. <laughs> and I apparently am not going to be on his show because I pitched a show for him. Nice. It's true. Nice. It's true. But he's a really nice dude. He is a smart, passionate guy. So and his... he lives down here. He does? Yeah, he's in like San Jose somewhere, yeah. I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. so his show is called The Jordan Harbinger Show. And the episode that I found was on imposter syndrome. And I read a whole bunch of articles. And what I liked about his show was that at the end of it, it listed resources, which is what you do too. And it had all the articles on imposter syndrome that he had cited. And again, back to that thing where I'm a nerd, I was like, I'm going to consume all of it. Um, so here's what I discovered. There are four steps to knocking imposter syndrome out nice to be clear sort of like with pain it's not like you're never going to have it but when you have it you're going to know what to do about it mm. step one ready acknowledge that it's happening N acknowledge it don't pretend it's not happening don't avoid it acknowledge that it's happening and talk about it and know that it happens to everyone uh -huh. by the way imposter syndrome happens to everyone at some point usually when they're moving in a forward direction in their lives ah, That's right. okay. so know it's happening and acknowledge it and like if you can say to someone that it's happening even better because you'll get validation from that other person like oh yeah i've had imposter syndrome too and then you're like oh i'm not all alone with this this is why i talk about it i think unconsciously i'm like do you get this too do you get this too and this goes back to social medicine mm. social medicine is real when mm. you tell someone about a thing that you're suffering with and they validate it your suffering goes down. Mm. You're like, oh, God, Zubin has imposter syndrome. Also, well, then now I feel a little less bad because mm. that guy knows all the things. So I know, right? It's just, it's not easy being the perfect battle cat and He-Man all rolled up in one with a little side of Orko. Yeah, I'm, it must be hard for you. I'm actually 99% snarf genetically. <laughs> That's why I like, I really like your biopsychosocial model because I'm like, right. genes don't determine my snarfness. I wonder if depression runs in the snarf line. I hope not. They strike me as a very pessimistic, nattering oh. nabob of negativity, the snarf. Wow. So it may be, I think it's biopsychosocial. Nabob of negativity. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of Nixon's henchmen who said that. Nattering about, nabob. About, about the liberal media. He was like, oh. the nattering nabobs of negativity would say this about. It's so good. Yeah, it's I love good one, the right? alliteration on that one. It's good. All right. So, Back to you. Right. Okay. But so acknowledging and normalizing. It's happening. To this imposter syndrome thing is happening to me. And I know that it happens to everyone. I'm going to talk to someone about it and normalize it. Yeah. That's thing one. Step two is externalizing. Externalizing means there's a thing happening inside of you and you attach to it sometimes. So it becomes part of your identity, but you don't want to do that. I'm going to give you an example. Huh. Instead of thinking I am an imposter, which is fusing with the thought and having it become part of your identity, you want to externalize it and instead say, not I am an imposter. I am having this experience of imposterism. Ah. I am having this experience of imposter syndrome. Um, this is that is that spirituality 101 too. That's meditation 101. Is it? You disidentify from the experience and instead notice that it's an occurrence and awareness. So uh, not 
oh, I'm in pain. You say, no, no, no. I'm having an experience That's of pain. Right. That's right. And then you can even go farther and say, you know, awareness of the pain and the pain are not two things. It's just pain. Right. That's all. And yeah. it's the same with depression. Instead of I am a depressed person, yes. it's I'm having this experience of depression. That's right. All the things are connected. So imposter syndrome, you disidentify from it, but you experience it. You say, okay, I acknowledge the experience. Yeah. I'm having the experience, but I'm not, it's not that I am an imposter. It's not my identity. I'm just having this experience. And then step three is reframing it. Mm. What do I mean by reframing it? Um, Imposter syndrome happens during times of human growth. It's actually a sign of success. It's a sign that you're stepping out of your comfort zone. You're challenging yourself and you're pushing yourself. And um, if you're having an, an imposter syndrome moment, it actually is. Um, if you'd like to reframe it, which I rec recommend because it's helping me immensely. Mm. It means that you are moving forward in your life and you're, you're stretching yourself a little bit and you are um, growing and succeeding. And what I learned from Jordan Harbinger is imposter syndrome happens to people who are high achieving. And yep. of course it does, because you're trying to you are trying to grow and you are trying to, you know, step into these like shoes that don't fit you yet. But you're hoping that they do. So acknowledge it, externalize it, reframe it, reframe it. Uh, so. That's that's brilliant. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that, and and that that is that is meditation one hundred and one too. Mm. And I'll add even a th another spin on it that is probably wrong, but I'm going to say it anyways. Do it. In a way, we what we resist persists, right? And, yeah. And, and so by saying, oh, I mean, I'm having this imposter syndrome now. Why am I having this now? I'm in the, about to give a talk. It's going to totally derail my whole talk and yep. I'm just going to worry about it. And so you're resisting it. Instead, if you say, oh, there it is, imposter syndrome. Oh yeah, I'm going to reframe it. Yeah, it's because I'm about to do something cool that is a challenge for me and I'm appropriately, oh, you know what? What is imposter syndrome? It's a part of my unconscious, a little child in there that's trying to get my attention and be like, hey, like you're going to try something that's really hard. I'm feeling a little scared. I'm feeling a little scared. And insecure. And so you just want to take it and be like, it's okay. It's all right. Totally. It is going to be a little scary, but that we're going to do it together. It's okay. Yeah. I'm I'm glad you're here for me. Right. I love that. So then it's not this adversarial right. relationship with this part totally. of you. Yeah. Yep. Like, oh, this is a good thing. And it's a byproduct of success. Yeah. And how proud of, how proud of myself am I that I'm stepping out of my comfort zone and doing this thing anyway, even though it's making me uncomfortable. That's right. That's right. That's the yeah. reframe. I love it. Good. Man, that was really helpful. Wasn't that cool? That was really cool. I know. I read all the things. I thought it was so fascinating. And and it turns out I actually originally thought that women suffered from it more than men. Guess what? Not true. Really? I know. It's not true. I don't think it's true. Men and women equally is what I read. That, now, it makes sense. It makes sense. Although you would argue, well, the biopsychosocial components of women are different than men. So maybe there would be a difference. But I think this is a fundamental human thing. Like goes right to the core of identity, the core of some evolved deep conditioning. Like it's almost, you, you know, we, we talk about genetics, right? Yeah. As this kind of like um, inherited thing. You can reframe genetics as a kind of a, I hate to use this word because it sounds like new age mumbo jumbo, but a kind of karma, a kind of an inheritance of a pattern that goes from the ancient like beginning of the universe all the way to now. Yeah. So what is imposter syndrome? It's a pattern of energy that has kept us safe in some way. Mm. We don't overextend. Yeah, right. Because that little guy in there is like, bro, you're not, that's not your Rain it in a yeah, little bit. Rain it in. And so to some extent it keeps you from doing really stupid stuff, but then it becomes a problem when you're trying to stretch. So it's always a balance. Um, 
I love it. Yeah. And I think the real trick, as you just touched on with imposter syndrome, is if it's preventing you from doing things, then it's a problem. Then it's a problem. So yeah. if you feel it and you do the things anyway, you're which on is, it. Which is what you do. Which is what you do. Well, we both kind of do it. But yeah. you, I think you have to overcome more in the current because you're pushing yourself in a way that... First of all, you've been doing it for a long time. You have every expertise in this, but you haven't done it as much as I have in terms of pushing yourself for that long. No way. Because w- w- t- ten, 10 years ago, t- I started this thing in 2010 when I did TED Med in 2013. Yeah. Like I was, I've never been so scared. Oh my like, God. I, I mean, can only t- imagine. It still gives me a little bit of panic thinking about yeah. it. And, and after that, every time I did a talk, it was just Everything that you say, sweating and panic Nausea. and wanting to throw up, yeah. right? And all of that. So and bad. that lasted for years. No, don't tell me that. Well, but it's also because I never really had the tools or the approach to address it. Mm-hmm. I would just go, this is just something that happens every time. And you know, every time I do a talk, I'd be like, it was so damaging to me physiologically that I would be like, I'm never doing this Dreading again. Dreading the next one. I'm never doing know, this again. And then the next one would, be, I'd get invited and I'd get a rush of like, yes, oh, I love talking. And, and then I, I then I would remember, oh no, wait, no. The physiology. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And by the way, just like a quick reminder that like anyone who thinks that emotions just live in your head and are not physiological. Oh. Well, this is like the perfect example of how emotions actually come out in your body and can make you physically ill. Totally. And can perpetuate. Any sort of syndrome that you already have. Absolutely. Yeah. They are they are feelings for a reason. You right. feel them in the body. Right. Yeah. I think I told you this last time, like energy and motion, emotion. Ooh. Yeah. It, it is, it, it, in its rawest sense, it's a bodily sensation that we then tell a lot of stories about that then become, then we make it heady. Totally. But the rawest part of the emotion is, is a, is a sensation. Um, Boy, you know, thinking back to those times right before you go on stage when you feel those physiologic responses, I mean, what if you just dive into the sensation? That's what I do now sometimes because I'll still get a little you just feel transit. You just feel it. You just go, oh, there it is. There's my friend uh, panic or uh, rapid heart rate. You know, what's crazy is- in Talking about it is making my I heart know, go crazy. Me too, me too. So th- there's a thing that happens with me now where all that panic is compressed into a 30 second period. So it used to be like, I'd feel it over to God, even the night days. before and all oh, days. days and now what happens is I'm totally chill until they go, our next speaker uh, yeah. is this guy and yeah. he's done this and this and yeah. this. And it's crazy. You feel it. You go, this rush, the heart rate speeds up. It's right. going like 110. I'm right. sure my blood pressure is like high. I'm starting to feel it in the chest, in the stomach, the butterflies, all of that. The imposter is coming yeah. out. Like, dude, you have no business being here. Get the hell exactly. out now, run. Fight or flight. But then- because I've kind of acknowledged it and practiced it and I've been through it and I've done it, it starts to fade and I go on stage and I do my thing. Okay, and it actually, if anything, it gives you that little kick in the Jolt, pants. Yeah. The adrenaline. Okay, that's good yeah, to know. I yeah. aspire to get to that. You're 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 99%. I am not. You are not 99% look, there. Look, look at what a natural you are when you talk okay, about you. stuff you love. All right, great. All right, we'll stop. Yeah. So to, to <laughs> compliments are hard for we, me. Because imposter syndrome, that's why that, compliments are hard for yes, me. That's actually why. Okay, yes. but let's anyway. That's why I always send you all the compliments. Okay. Yeah. What's the next thing? Do we have time for another thing? Of or? course we do. We've been going for about an hour and 16 minutes. So one more thing. Absolutely. Let's do benzos. You want to do benzos? Or do you want to do insomnia? Uh, I don't know. I think we should talk about benzo. You know what? Benzodiazepines is so important. I almost want to put it at the beginning of another show. Save it. And I'll just say this, because I know we promised we'd talk about it. I'm just going to say this. For people who think these drugs, Valium, Xanax, uh, there's a million of them. Clonopin, Ativan. Thank you. 
they that they're like essential, you know, pieces of our our puzzle. Yes, everything is 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 important. These drugs are particularly poisonous, toxic, addictive, and suffering inducing. And if you think that you're gonna wave a magic wand with these drugs and fix your biopsychosocial problem of anxiety or whatever it is, you are you are being fed a bill of goods and you in the suffering these drugs cause is at least as bad as opioids, um, maybe worse. And if you look at people like Jordan Peterson, who've come out of addiction to these, who were in rehab for you know months for this stuff, and we'll talk about it like they've come through a hell, uh, you will understand that these drugs are not a joke. Not a joke. Yeah, let's do it next time because I think there's so many things to say about it. But what I hear all the time from people who are living with anxiety is that it's prescribed like candy. Benzodiazepines are prescribed like candy. And again, Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, you know, we've all we've all heard of them, I think, because doctors really and I think it's not doctors fault. Like their doctors are t- sold this idea because, you know, physicians want to ease suffering. Of course, mm. that's why we all go into healthcare. We want to ease suffering. But I think physicians are sold this lie that these pills are going to ease their patient's suffering. Yeah. And, and Big Pharma has billions of dollars to market this idea that these pills really are the cure. And and by the way, they aren't. They are not. They are toxic. They are addictive. There's a rebound effect. So as soon as you go off them, you feel worse than you did before. Mm-hmm. So so and I also just want to make clear and say, I am not a doc. I am not your doctor and Zubin's not your doctor. So we can't give anyone medical advice. And I, I always want to say that. But and I am also not recommending that you go cold turkey off these drugs because it will be so, so bad for your body. You can die. You can die. The withdrawal from these drugs can be fatal. But we do want to make sure that people know that these are toxic medications. They are not panacea. They are not a magic pill and not a magic cure, but they are dispensed like candy. So I know that was sort of a teaser for next time, but we will go down that rabbit hole a little bit more. We'll go deeper and I'll say this like that. They work in the short run. Correct. Magically. Like you just go, oh my God, my anxiety's gone. Oh, it's magic. My panic attack stopped. And what price is that deal with the devil that you pay with these drugs? Now, again, I I wanted to say one other thing about this. That is not to say there aren't rare cases where people benefit from PRN, benzodiazepines, et cetera, in the context of a broader treatment strategy for whatever. So I don't want to lessen that. And I don't want to second guess some psychiatrists and psychologists who are using these drugs in those ways. And I know that we'll get messages from patients who are on them chronically and say, without them, I die and so on as well. It's true. Without them, you will withdraw and die. That is true. But I, I feel very strongly that we, if these drugs never existed um, for humans, well, it would be a problem because we use them in, in anesthesia and periop periods and things like that, but they are problematic. Yeah, it's real bad. Okay, so that said, okay, uh, insomnia. Insomnia, have you ever had insomnia? All the time. Like why and well, when? Okay, so it's evolved for me. When I was younger, I'd get it all the time. And I think it was just, can't stop the brain, racing thoughts, uh, not feeling tired, but then also feeling tired uh, 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 and different types of insomnia, waking up in the middle of the night, not being able to go back to bed, waking up early, not being able to initiate sleep. I've had them all. All the kinds. All the kinds, right? Now my predominant type of insomnia, when I get it, it's more rare as I early awakening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's common as you get older, mm. is what I hear. See, uh, you know, I mean, I have no firsthand experience with getting older because I'm timeless. You are. I'm you the are. eternal now. Yeah, right. And the, <laughs> the question really was, how do you treat insomnia? That was our friend Stephanie from Stephanie Twitter. Stephanie O from Twitter, yes. Um, 
Yeah, I also benzos, right? I have. Uh, oh God, those are prescribed for <laughs> yes. insomnia. So insomnia. benzos are prescribed for insomnia. Yes, and they as are. soon as you go off them, your insomnia gets rebounds, rebounds, and gets significantly worse. Mm-hmm. It is just a fun. It's like party drinking yourself to sleep. Similar, similar GABAergic mechanisms of alcohol and benzos to some degree. So you're saying alcohol does not work for sleep? No, it does not. It it will maybe knock you out, but you will. Your sleep cycle is disrupted. Your That's REM right. sleep is disturbed. Your restorative sleep is damaged. Correct. It's not a way to be. Right. It's a way to knock yourself out, but not to get good sleep. That's right. And, and benzos also, are the same way. Yeah. And also, I think with alcohol, there's like a lot of awakenings, right? Like it's not like a restful full night, like you. Sleep. Correct. Unless that's you're right. like hammered, hammered. No, that's right. That's right. And the same with actually THC. Oh. So some people say, well, then I swear it helps me sleep. But if you actually look at the Monitor. sleep patterns, they're not great. That is so good to know. Um, I did not know that. It is interesting. You know, one other thing I want to say that actually relates insomnia and the benzo issue. I, I, I want to make sure people know the suffering that underlies the need for benzos the panic, the anxiety, the insomnia, the fear, the whatever it is, is we shouldn't diminish that by saying we hate benzos. We should say, you know, we should be very clear. There's a reason these drugs are so popular that we're suffering. People are suffering. So let's address the suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that. It's a really important point. Yeah. Yeah. So back to insomnia. Insomnia. This is a kind of suffering too. Yeah. So, so what am I allowed to ask when you have insomnia, what do you do? Well, so- what I do is, um, first of all, I'll, I'll realize sometimes, oh, I did something wrong during the day. Like I, I ate, I drank coffee afternoon or something. So I look at my caffeine intake. You're like, shoot, stimulants. Yeah, stimulants. Dark chocolate right. is a problem right. uh, because it has caffeine. People don't realize the things that have caffeine, certain right. teas and things like that. Yeah. So I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be like, God, why, why, why? And then I'll be like, oh, God damn it. I went to a Chinese restaurant. I had a pot of oolong tea, not knowing because right. what they gave me to drink. Right. And now I can't sleep. Well, duh. And I can feel it in the heart. Right, and here's the bio components of insomnia, by the way. There you go. Here, so, so caffeine, exactly. caffeine, stimulants, stimulants um, ex- late exercise or stimulation. Late before exercise, bed. absolutely, will stimulate your body. Screens in the late before going to bed, this that's blue right. light that's stimulating us. You got it. It changes circ- the sleep chemicals and your circadian rhythms. Nice. Also the bio. So I'll go through that little differential diagnosis and that'll keep me more awake because now I'm thinking. Shit. <laughs> and then it becomes a pattern of, oh, I just remembered something I should have done or shouldn't have done or I said in a show that I shouldn't have said or this person that attack me on Twitter and now now it's cognitive. So now I'm anxious. So I'm feeling the anxiety physically. I'm feeling in the chest. So this is our psych bubble. Yes. Of insomnia. Yep. I'm thinking these thoughts and I'm ruminating. I love the word ruminating. Ruminating is like- So accurate. Yeah. Ruminating is when you think a thought over and over and it's like, you know, if you've ever watched a dryer and it's just like wash it, it's drying your clothes, it's just going around in <laughs> a circle it. over and yeah. over in the same piece of clothes, like the same yellow yeah. shirt. You just yeah. keep seeing it over and over again. That's ruminating. Yeah. So when you're lying in bed and you have the same thought over and over and over and over again, it's not helping you. No. You're not solving anything. No. Your brain is just chewing on it. It's chewing on it. And the brain, again, let's forgive our minds. There are these little, sometimes they have these little children components that are like, if I just keep at this, I'll crack this. The feelings that that actually are associated with like this anxious feeling in the chest, maybe the only way to deal with this is by thinking about it constantly, thinking about what's triggering it. And the truth is, well, it may be that just relaxing that and feeling the sensation because it wants to be felt might be better. But again, so yeah, so the rumination, very, very common with me in particular, because I'll, I'll ruminate about it. Now, now I'm much better because I'll recognize these 
patterns. So all the introspection and the work that I do on myself at least has that benefit where I'm like, oh, this is what's happening. Okay. So at that point, what I do is sometimes I'll say, okay, I'm not sleeping. So now I'm in bed and I'm conditioning myself to not sleep in bed. You know all the things. So, and this again, this is from personal suffering. So it's like, okay, I'm going to get out of bed. I'm going to go sit somewhere quietly. Maybe I'll meditate. Maybe I'll read something until I feel like the body says it's time to go back to sleep. And so that's sometimes what I'll do with anxiety when that happens. I'll meditate on the feeling of anxiety and, and that transmutes it. It's crazy. It's now works almost every time. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Sometimes you just can't. And you're just like, no, I just got to, this is just going to be this way tonight. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so emotions sometimes are part of an insomnia recipe and that's in our psych bubble too. So emotions like stress and anxiety, when there's stuff going on in your life, Mm. of course there is, or you're feeling really sad that can keep you up or wake you up also, Mm. or you're feeling really angry and frustrated that can wake you up or keep you up also. So there's this cognitive component. There are the emotions of it. So biopsychosocial, always all the things, insomnia too. Mm. So um, agree 100%, really appreciate your example. And I want to give like a quick hack for what to do for insomnia because that's Stephanie's question. Yes. What to do for insomnia. Now, there are people who will tell you, you know where I'm going with this, that you should just- Do one thing, take a pill. Take a pill for your insomnia. Mm -hmm. But what research shows is that actually the medications will disrupt- your natural sleep-wake chemicals Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in your brain um, and actually over time will make your sleep worse Mm -hmm. and not better. So benzos, benzodiazepines, are not good for sleep. Uh, What are your thoughts on things like NyQuil and Benadryl and what are the casual over-the-counter, like Ambien? Very similar to benzos in the sense. I don't know the research, but I'll say this. They, sometimes they can help you get to bed. That's sure, true. Yeah, yes. Used very intermittently, maybe a good tool, especially if you're, you know, you really need to sleep for the next day or whatever, but they have this, probably the same components, especially, you know, Benadryl can have a very dysphoric kind of hallucinatory component. Uh, uh, and, and Ambien, again, these are dependency forming yes, medications. They yes, they are. Um, and sometimes they really don't help the early awakening issues. No, that's they don't right. help you get to bed, but they don't help the underlying right. thing. It's that's the underlying right. yeah. turmoil. Yeah, that's right. That, that, that we're not, and that's why I think, again, you can really feel into people who are suffering and you're telling them, oh, well now there isn't a magic pill. It's actually complicated and you can just feel the suffering. Everyone's arising. like, Oh, Everyone's don't like, tell me that. On, just dude. give me like, a, knock me over the head I with a know, hammer. Exactly. Oh, it's, I've had that feeling. Mm-hmm. Just, will someone just please hit me over the head? Me too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like why? And that then there's also like the relief. why, the why, why is this happening? Well, and, yeah. and you and I have just said the why, like there's some stuff going on. There's stuff going on in your life. There's like emotional turmoil. There's cognitive yeah. ter- turmoil and there's environmental, like there's stuff like we and are living. physical stuff. Yeah. And there's physical, physical stuff. stuff. And we are living through a pandemic. Right. We are living through one of the most stressful experiences that humans can live through like no one will deny that That all the things going on right now have been very stressful and dysregulating yeah for everyone it's triggered a lot of anxiety a lot of stress a lot of um a lot of issues for everyone so so a lot of compassion there yeah so i want to give uh some solutions please you've named some already uh, one is stimulants. reducing <laughs> stimulants. That's right. You want to, if you're someone who's ha- dealing with insomnia, no more coffee. Just don't dial. If you're someone who drinks coffee regularly, wean it off, dial back, wean yeah. off gradually, slowly off the stimulants. Cause they're not, they're surely not helping your sleep cycle. Mm-hmm. That's thing one thing two. The first thing that you do in the morning is you get some sunlight in your pupils. And by the way, I don't mean stare at the sun. We don't want to burn out your retina. <laughs> 
But getting sunlight in your eyes stimulates all sorts of sleep-wake chemicals. So it breaks down the sleep chemicals and it stimulates the wake chemicals. And to be even more nerdy, bear with me here. There's a part of your brain that I happen to love called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Oh, it makes me think of um, my boy SCN. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me think of, um, God, what was that song from Mary Poppins? Like super casual, fragilistic, expialidocious. You and I are that word. Nope. Every time I read it, I think of super every time. It's the same thing. Super chiasmatic, uh, chiasmatic nucleus. Super chiasmatic nucleus. Mm. So the super chiasmatic nucleus is this part of your brain that lives at the top of your optic nerves. Mm. And it's programmed by sunlight because human beings are diurnal, which means we are awake during the day, function and activities during the day, and we are asleep at night. And this little part of your brain is programmed by sunlight. And you may have noticed that if you set your alarm every single day for 7 a.m., what happens over time, and you get up and you get sunlight every day, what happens over time is you don't need the alarm anymore. Your mm. brain will wake you up. At 7 a.m. If you if you do it long enough. And that's because your SCN has gotten programmed by sunlight. You have an internal alarm clock. It's called your SCN. It's very cool. So if you are dealing with insomnia, you want to go out, you want to set your alarm at some time and you want to go outside and get some sunlight in your pupils because your pupils are your eyes, which are connected to your brain, technically part of your brain, your optic nerves. And they program your suprachiasmatic expialidocious part of your brain, Mary Poppins. Mm. That's thing two. Thing three, try and set a sleep time and a wake time. A sleep time. And by the way, the reason I know all this stuff is because I treat pain and sleep and pain have an intimate relationship. Mm. And, and so I always want to hack sleep because mm. it's part of pain. It's part of anxiety. It's part of depression. So sleep time and awake time. So it's very helpful to have a sleep time and awake time again, because that part of your brain loves to be programmed. And the human body is always striving for homeostasis which is a fancy word for balance. And, and the human brain really likes regularity and balance. And when you have a sleep time and awake time, it is really helpful for all the things, anxiety, mm. depression, pain, everything, and sleep. Mm. So sleep time, wake time, your body knows when it's getting up and it knows when it's crashing and going to bed. So like 7 a.m. wake time, 11 p.m. sleep time. That, and we just aim for that. doesn't mean you have to be rigid about it. We just aim for it. The next thing is the thing that you said that you do, which is so brilliant. And I want to say the science of why. When you've been laying in bed, the rule of thumb for me is like 20 minutes or more. And I don't want you looking at your clock. Right. Do not, you're going to turn your clocks around. I don't want anyone looking at their clocks. Because as soon as you look at your clock and you're like, ah, oh, it's two in the morning and I'm not asleep. What happens to stress and anxiety? Panic. It goes up. And as stress and anxiety go up, likelihood of sleep goes down. So no looking at clocks. Turn your phone over. Turn your clocks around, put tape over the oven, stove, light, whatever. Don't look at any clocks. I don't want you knowing that it's four in the morning. It will only stress you out. But when you've been laying in bed for something that feels like 20 minutes or so, get out of bed. Get out of bed. Because here's what happens. You said this. You're laying in bed. You're like, I'm not sleeping. Why aren't I sleeping? When am I going to fall asleep? I need to function tomorrow. I have the show to do. I have paper straight. I have to work. My kids need me. I have to show up. I million responsibilities. I'm going to fire all the thoughts that come into your head when you're mm. not sleeping. I'm going to be dysfunctional. Uh, the longer you lay in bed, the more of those thoughts you have, the higher the stress and anxiety goes, the lower the likelihood of sleeping becomes. That's part of it. Part two 
is you mentioned Pavlov. Will you, do you want to tell everyone who Pavlov is? So my boy Pavlov was a operant conditioning guy, I think, where he classic. basically, yeah, classic conditioning, where he uh, had these dogs and he would notice that if he fed them when he rang a bell, they would become conditioned to know that what the bell meant feeding. So then he could just ring the bell and they would just start to salivate. Exactly. That's exactly right. Sorry for putting you on the spot. I'm so no, sorry. No, no, no. It, it, it just took me back to the old I school. I know. It's like you, you learn it so early in training that it's like you have to go back 20 years of like- Yeah, yeah. It's true. That's right. And dust the dust it off. And right. So Pavlov was this wonderful scientist guy. And he wondered if things that were not actually naturally related could become related. Mm. So we know that when we give dogs meat, they salivate because meat is delicious unless you're a vegetarian and then right. you don't want to eat it, which is totally fine. So in which case he, legumes are delicious, in, in which case tofu and yes. legumes and and what is what is the fake meat called? The Shilled monkey brains. OK. <laughs> Impossible. Impossible. Stuff. Right. Impossible. Yeah. So he would feed the dogs meat and they would salivate, feed them meat, salivate. And eventually he was like, gosh, I wonder if I can make these dogs salivate to something not delicious, mm. something that has nothing to do with meat. So he decided to use a bell. And we can all agree that dogs do not eat bells. Bells are not delicious to dogs. So he would ring a bell, give dogs meat. Ring bell, give meat. Ring bell, give meat. Ring bell over and over and over again. And over time, as you astutely mentioned, what would happen is he would ring the bell and the dog's brains had paired these two unrelated things, meat with bell. In real life, those things are not related. But learning occurred. Brain changes occurred over time. And so when he would ring the bell, the dogs would salivate. Guess what happens when you lay in bed, not sleeping and feeling anxious? Your brain pairs bed with stress and anxiety. Mm. The longer you lay in bed feeling stressed and anxious about not sleeping, the more your brain will pair <laughs> bed with not sleeping, which is the opposite of what you want when you get in bed. What you want your brain to pair your bed with is drooling unconsciousness. Yes. So, so yeah, go. it's like a Bluetooth connection. Right. Like you don't want a Bluetooth to pain and bed and right. unhappiness. Right. Exactly. Yes. You right. want a Bluetooth to blissful unconsciousness. Exactly. Right. So you want to get into bed only when you're sleepy, not when you're tired. And there is a difference. I'm tired now. Tired and sleepy are not the same. Sleepy is I feel like I'm about to fall asleep. Right. Tired is like maybe you throughout your day. Right. Sleepy is I'm about. So you only get into bed when sleepy. And if you're not asleep within 20 minutes and you feel yourself getting stressed out, you want to break that cycle. You don't want to pair your bed with being stressed. You get out of your bed and you have some things in your living room or whatever that you're ready to do. It can be a coloring book. I like adult coloring books. You can make fun of me if you want to. I don't care. Did you say adult coloring books? Oh God, that sounded so bad. Because I'm all in. Oh my God, that sounded so bad. Is that a thing? Uh, coloring <laughs> books that are not for children. Oh. There's like Zen, it's like Zentangles. Oh yeah, they're very, and, oh very my complicated. God, I did not okay. mean anything rated like, R. Oh God. What, what part of the human anatomy needs color? I mean, I, <laughs> Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> right. It's not for not pornographic coloring books. <laughs> you know, I just gotta say, I gotta make one. I don't know. I can't tell because. Oh my God, because the lights are I'm, so I'm, I'm red agnostic, <laughs> wow. not quite colorblind, but I'll say this. Why is it that you and I always end up in these weird know. situations? I'm so embarrassed. Because I've had a few messages from people like, you're such a sexist. You always make these <laughs> dirty jokes with Rachel, but you don't do it with Marty McCary. I'm like, well, yeah, I don't you know why You should talk to him is. about adult coloring books next time you see him. <laughs> Just bring one in. He'll like, probably do an op-ed in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal about it then. By the way, I brought you a uh, rated art coloring book. No, oh, there's like Zen tangles. It's like there's Zen, there's 
There are coloring books that are not like comic book characters is what I'm trying to say. Got it. But there's a million. Zentangle sounds like a, a problem with oh, God. manscaping or womanscaping. Yeah. But there's a million things that one can do when <laughs> one is tired that is not going to stimulate you. Oh, sorry. That last part. What did I do? I was going to say, I know some things you can do in the bed that aren't. But no. See, this is what happens. This is your problem. It is my problem. It is. It's the unconscious 10-year-old in me that's like, right. oh. So you want to get out of bed. Okay. And do calming things. Got it. That will soothe your system. So you can listen to calming music. You can okay. read a dumb magazine. All right. You can have a boring book read. You can listen to a boring podcast. You do not want to be stimulated. So no murder mysteries, mm-hmm. nothing exciting mm. in any capacity. Okay. No rated R coloring books. So no good housekeeping magazine is what you're saying. Depends on what stimulates. It's different for everyone. I mean, I saw Step Brothers. I'll just leave that for the audience who knows Step Brothers. Oh, dear. <laughs> I hope the general gist of what I'm saying is coming across <laughs> despite the fact that I'm like stepping over myself it is, here. It is. So do you just have some calming things ready for you? And then when you can't sleep, you're it's less stressful. You're like, OK, I knew that this might happen. I'm totally ready. I'm prepared. I'm going to go to my couch and I'm going to do some reading and some sewing and whatever it is that you do, listening to some music. And then after 20 minutes or so, you're feeling sleepy. You get back into bed. Go back. That's right. And you lay down. And if it happens again, ain't no thing. And and I'll tell you from firsthand experience, I have had insomnia my whole life because yeah. I get stressed out about things, yeah. especially during grad school. Oh, yeah. And, and I would just know I'm going to have some nights like this where I'm in and out of bed. And like, it really isn't fun. But let me tell you, your brain wants you to sleep and your brain is going to put you to sleep eventually. And that is a very important thing to know that even if you have a couple bad nights like this, you're as long as you're regimented about this and doing all the things and you have a sleep time and awake time and you're not napping, by the way, no naps, you're not napping uh, all day in the middle of the day. Yeah. Eventually your brain is going to regulate. Okay. This is great because it actually diffuses some of the catastrophizing and the Correct. thoughts that happen. Cause that, that is one of the problems. I'm, now right. I'm not sleeping. That's right. Now I'm ruined. I'm That's forever right. broken. Right. I'm not going to be able to catch up. So no, not true. Correct. And the not napping thing is interesting because I've heard that as well. Like the, the naps. No naps. Because it, what you're doing is again, you're just spreading out the sleep and, and instead of doing it when you really need to. Yeah. 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 So I'll tell you the why. Mm. There's a chemical, I believe it's adenosine in your brain mm. that builds up over the course of your day. And when it reaches a certain critical level, that's when you fall asleep. Mm. Now, what happens when you take a nap in the middle of the day is you lower the level of adenosine. Uh, so you need to build it up to an it's it's delayed. The building up of it is delayed even later. So if you take a three hour nap in the middle of the day, all right. you're not going to fall asleep until two in the morning. Is, and then you're going to try and wake up at seven or eight and it's not going to work. And this is parenting 101. The kid sleeps too long during the day, doesn't Correct. get to sleep at you night. Got, yeah. Yeah. It. And and it. and so. Okay, I'll, I, you may t- be talking about this, but what about things like melatonin and these sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a great question. So yeah. my understanding is melatonin can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look, my my like at the end of the day, my TLDR, too long, didn't read, short, brief summary is like, your brain has all the chemicals it needs mm. to help you get to sleep. Mm. Like if you're using all the things, you can hack insomnia. So right. getting sunlight, setting these behavioral parameters. But yes, melatonin can be really helpful, especially is my understanding, especially if you're jet lagged. Right. Um, And there's been research that shows that if you have migraine and headache, melatonin can also be helpful for Mm -hmm. sleep Mm -hmm. and headache. Mm. Uh, That's what I've read. Mm -hmm. Um, But but in general, like you have all the chemicals. Yeah. Your brain has the chemicals it needs and your brain is eventually going to sleep. And if you're not sleeping, it's your body's way of telling you there's some shit that needs to be worked out. Like you're thinking about some stuff or there's something going on in your life. Right. It makes sense. There's and something happening. So the way, the way I, 
I often conceive about these processes. And again, it's, some of it comes from meditation. Some of it comes from reading about uh, neuroscientists talking about these ideas that there are these sub-minds that are processing yeah. information unconsciously. Yeah. yeah. At, at some point, that information gets pushed into consciousness. And the sooner that happens, the sooner it's processed yeah. and those sub-minds can stop. Yeah. If you have been dealing with a bunch of stuff, like you said, it's been yeah. a hard day, the stuff's going crazy, there's stress, whatever. It's processing, whether you're awake or asleep, it does it still. So it's what you don't really ideally want is in the middle of the night, that sub-mind to be like, hey, by the way, remember that thing? Um, and then you're like, oh, and then you're awake. So that means that sometimes you just have to deal with your shit, which takes work. It's not as easy as taking Klonopin That's right. or Ambien. Right. It's hard and we're tired, That's but right. it is the only sustainable solution. And, and, right. and, and understand that there's, it's not magic. So you may get better and then it may come back again. That's exactly right. Just like right. depression, just like anything. That's exactly right. Can't be discouraged. We can't yeah. be like, I'm broken. It's never going to get, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rad. Yeah. Dude, this was radical. Yeah. I, I extended the word rad. Okay. Because- Good. Because um, you're an extender of things. Because two words, science. Um, <laughs> I think we did a thing. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a so lot of fun. So we covered pretty a much lot. everything. We didn't dive deep into benzos. But no, we, we least, did a lot. We kind of said the main thing, which is. Yeah. And I do want to say to everyone, like we get a lot of questions and they're wonderful. And yeah. don't be mad at us that we don't get to everything because it's just yes. impossible. But there's so many great questions we're getting. That's Can right. we tell people where to submit? And by the way, we like the questions and they're going to get integrated into all the stuff we keep doing. R Rachel is a massive nerd and keeps like a big spreadsheet with all your questions. So nothing is lost. No, and then I do research and I look up all the articles yes. and I have lists of articles and I send them to Zubin and he's like, bruh, I don't wanna read these. I'm like, why are you giving me homework, girl? Like, I thought you were supposed to teach me. I'm She's busy. like, no, it's a conversation. You're supposed to be a doctor. And I'm like, you're supposed to be a doctor. And then both of our imposter syndrome gets triggered. And we're like, we're both phonies. And then we're both phonies. Who do and we think we are? Crying on the phone. And then- Let's just talk about So what are we doing in the show? Yeah, let's talk books. about perverted Scrabble and adult calling books. Exactly. And Zen Tangles. Yeah. Um, oh no, COVID. what have we done? You gave me your COVID. I definitely didn't. You're gonna get- I don't have it anymore. If you get it, it's not for me. Dude, totally. Sorry. It's for my kids. Everyone in their school is, is Omicron. I am sure positive. that's true. Yeah, so it's just a matter of time. Uh, so the way you send us messages is hello at zdogmd.com and use hashtag, what is it? Pain points. And, uh, and we'll take your message. I'll forward it to Rachel. She'll put it in the spreadsheet. Yep. I won't be able to answer your question, okay, on an email because I get so many questions and yep. I can't do medical advice individually. Yep. I can't, we, when we're not giving medical advice here. We are not. This is educational and informative. Yep. And I, I also, doctor. I've been also getting a lot of questions on Twitter, mm -hmm. which I think eases your burden a little bit. Mm. And uh, am I at Dr. Zafnis on Twitter? At Dr. Zafnis. Perfect. On at Twitter. Dr. So you can either tweet at me or just DM me. Both of those are fine. Uh, just don't DM me anything creepy or weird. Zentangles. Totally. And uh, Instagram also people have been finding me and writing. I'm at the real docs off on Instagram. I couldn't think of a better name. I don't know why I picked that one. It's, it's a little embarrassing. Perfect because at it sounds like you're off. a celebrity and there are fake at doctors. At the real docs off. Yeah, yeah really there's good. no fake docs off out there. That's imposter <laughs> syndrome by proxy. Yeah, for like real. Like you've just created a celebrity that now I, has to have imposter syndrome. I started syndrome. it ironically because I saw everyone doing the real this and the real <laughs> right. that. And I was like, I, I roll. No, I was like rolling my eyes at that. Like, oh, okay, you're the real one. Sure. And now you've done it. Well, I did it to be sort of like, ironical like that's so you're funny. basically alanis morissette but with a phd do you know that people say that they're yes. like you look like alanis morissette and i'm like i don't think i do but all right i can sing about rain and irony and that is an irony but rather just a series of bummers that's right yeah <laughs> <A series of> bummers. 
<laughs> um, and I'll put the links to all your social media stuff to the book Rad. in the show notes. Um, but you guys, Zubin followed me on Twitter. I sure did. He followed me on Twitter. And then I'm like real now. I'm like a real you know person what? now. The next thing I did after that was I deleted my Twitter app. <laughs> Oh, you did? Smart. Yeah, I That's finally smart. did. I finally did. Because uh, I guess a good way to go out on this because we're approaching almost two hours. Oh, God, no. We're, no, no. We're great. No. We're good. It's an Let's hour and 40 two. some odd minutes. No, no. No, why? Too long. Let people slog through too it. Long. Actually, no, no, no. It's because my, my wonderful new assistant actually does time codes now. Oh, so they can long. just click right to the part they way like. Um, yeah, I, 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 I finally did what I've always said I, I wanted to do, which is not cancel Twitter entirely because, I mean, you can reach a lot of people on Twitter. It's oh, a very yeah. powerful tool. But rather, I no longer look at Twitter. Oh, smart. I leave my thing there and I've deleted the app. I've deleted the bookmark because I would get sucked into these oh, don't. arguments and conversations. And then it's a 2 a.m. wake up like, remember what that guy said about you on Twitter? Maybe there's a component of truth to it. And then you're like, imposter comes out. He's like, yeah, bro, you know, you really don't know what you're doing. It's like, oh, man. And uh, so I said, you know what? The people who really care, who think that I'm wrong about something will email me. Yeah. Sure. And they will tell me in, in a very clear and long way, yeah. as opposed to a, a virtue signaling tweet where it's sure. like, look at me, I hate Z-Dog. And then I'll learn from it. Yeah. I don't need Twitter for that. Yeah. So there you have it. Okay. But I still follow you. Okay. I just don't you. read anyone's tweets. That's fine. Totally. Is that okay? Totally fine. Do you hate me now? No, it would take more than that. I don't care about What Twitter. would it take? What could I do? I guess uh, we're still rolling. All right, all right. Sure? This is a conversation we can have off camera. Okay, Guys. I'll think about it. I love you. Thank you, Dr. Z. Thanks, friend. Um, one little pitch to you guys is uh, if you like what we do, uh, become a supporter of the show, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And if you give, if you want to put a tip in the tip jar that supports all this junk here uh, so that we can stay like sponsor free, uh, go to paypal.me forward slash zdogmd. And any of those little tips, I will respond directly with an email thanking you. And if you have a comment there, I will respond to it. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you. And we are out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.